What up? <laughs> I feel like it's been a while, so I'm excited. I'm probably too excited, so I may talk really fast, but that's okay. Um, as Brennan said, we're in basically part three of our series, but starting a new book, a new letter. And before we get to the letter, we get to this, this book of Jude written to a church where we actually don't know where he's at. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had a moment or a conversation where you were going in, you had an expectation of like, here's what I want to say, here's how it's going to go, you're excited about it, and then either on the way or immediately at the start of the conversation, you hear something or something gets said and you immediately know the conversation is going to shift and you don't want to do it and it's going to be terrible. Anyone else have those experiences besides me? Thank the Lord. Okay, good. You know the awkwardness of that, right? I've had multiple conversations that have been like really, really heavy and I entered into it not thinking it was going to go that way. On a lighter side, I've had this with my son, Wesley. Last year, uh, he's in first grade now, he's, he was in kindergarten. And there was a lot of times last year where I'd pick him up from school and we'd go disc golfing, we'd, we'd hang out, uh, we would watch TV, we would read books. He's super into math which is really weird. And then I had Thanksgiving with my dad this last week and he said I was super into math growing up, which doesn't make sense because I'm not super into any school class or thing. So that was really interesting. Sometimes we would do math and he'd have me come up with these things. And so I'm going, it's one of those days where I just like, I had a good day. I just had a good day. It was a Wednesday, so it was early pickup and I was going in, gonna pick him up. And I was excited to say, hey, how's your day? How are things going? And I see him and they, they line up, come out, line up. And he always looks right when he gets out of the door and he waves at me. And today he didn't wave at me. And I was like, something's off. Just immediately knew something was wrong. I was ready and excited. Just asking him, hey, how, how's, how's this, your day? And something was off. And he comes running to me uh, after he tells his teacher I'm here. And I give him a hug and he says, hey, how's your day? And then all of a sudden I see his teacher walking toward me. And she's never done this before. And she comes up to me, and her name is Carlson, and she's incredible, like amazing teacher. And she says, I need to tell you something that happened today with Wesley. He's like, Wesley got into a fight in music class with another student. And immediately, I just wanted to get like defenses of like, no, my kid don't do that. Like immediately, I just was like, no, that's just not right. Wesley is legitimately the like kindest, most gentle spirit I know. And then I got to thinking, but my son is also... A follower, meaning he takes on the personality and attitude of those he hangs out with. And I'm not saying it was this other kid's fault, but this other kid, <laughs> it was also my son's fault. And they just started wrestling and not listening to the teacher. And, I, and we get into the car and the whole drive, I'm like, I got to address this with him. We got to talk about it. I don't want to do this. I wanted to go disc golfing with my son. We had like two hours before we had to get Alice and Otis. And I just like, and it's like the day's ruined. And I had to change the conversation. And the tone changed from what I wanted to talk about to like, all right, we got to talk about what happened. And this is the story of Jude. He's getting ready, and, and I can just see him in his, wherever he's at. He, he was most likely a, a traveling missionary and preacher and teacher to the churches all over. And he's getting ready to write this letter because he, he hears of this group in this church of people that most likely Peter had started, but he may have started. We don't really know. And he wants to write them about the salvation that they share and about the power of the Holy Spirit and what it looks like to live with Jesus. But he hears something about what's going on in this community. And he has all of a sudden to have this mindset shift and change into what he has to talk about. And that's Jude coming into this first part of what we're going to talk about tonight of the thing that he had to, he had to address. 
with this church. Again, like I said, we don't really know where this church is. Some people said modern-day modern day Turkey. Some people said Egypt. Some people said even further into Africa. Some people think that it was in Asia Minor. Like, there's just a lot of different places they think. What we know is that this is a church, follower of Jesus, that Jude is writing to, and there's some sort of relational connection there. So I'm going to start off right away, and we're going to give us a little more context and, and a little more clarity on who Jude is. Right in verse 1, it says this. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. He says, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. So stop right there. You can leave, leave the scripture up there. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. Well, James is the same James that we get the book of James from. He's the same James who's the lead pastor uh, and shepherd of the Jerusalem church. He's also the same James that is the brother of Jesus, half-brother. Jesus had four half-brothers, James and Jude was one of those. And so Jude doesn't start with the, this pedigree of, I'm a brother of Jesus. You also may know James. He leads one of the biggest movement, Christian movements around in Jerusalem. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus. I'm also a brother of James. And he doesn't say, I'm also, I'm a brother, half-brother of James, because he's setting the tone of the importance of what he's going to write about. He's setting the tone for what he has decided to do with his life. You see, James and Jude were ones who were not followers and believers that Jesus was the Messiah before his resurrection. Probably because they grew up with him. That's just the reality. Think about that. Like, you're growing up, and all of a sudden, right, you, I mean, you, you hit eight, you're, you're coming back from Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, your parents are worried about because Jesus isn't around, and you have to turn around for three days and go find your baby brother Jesus, or not baby, he'd be the oldest, chronologically, accordingly. Anyway, you got to go find Jesus, and so it's like three days are wasted, technically six, because we got to go find Jesus because he's in the temple, and you're growing up, and Jesus is doing everything right because he's God. But think, like, you're growing up, you're seeing this. And then he gets to, at 33, Jesus is preaching and teaching and doing healings. And, and all of a sudden, there's one moment in, in the gospel where it says, hey, Jesus, your mother and your family is here. Your, your mother and your brothers are here. And he says, this is my family who I'm talking to. And like, this dismisses them. He gives hard teachings of like, man, if you really love me, you'll hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sister. And it's not literally what he meant, but he gives these teachings. So if you're James or you're Jude and you're thinking like, who is this guy? Like, I've known you for your whole life. I was there when you pooped your pants, bud. Like, I know you. And so there was probably dissension and weirdness, and all of a sudden, Jesus dies. He raises from the dead, and things change for Jude. And this word servant also could be translated slave, and this was talked about even a little in the last couple of weeks of in Philemon with Onesimus, but this word here in the Greek, doulos, more closely resembles an indentured servant than our kind of modern idea of slave. But nonetheless, this servant, this slave, had no rights in the first century. And since Jude had a choice about serving Jesus, the Greek word that he uses here is used to make a point that as a believer, now as a follower of, yes, his half-brother, but more importantly, of the Messiah, Jude no longer views his life as his own. Instead, he understands himself to be fully at the service of Jesus. That's how he sets up this letter. That's how he starts. I've made a choice to holistically, with everything that I am, give myself to Jesus. Like I said, we don't know who he's writing to, but we know that he cares for him. Look what it says in verse 3. Dear friends, dear friends, 
Like that's intimate, intimate language. That's language that you just don't throw around. He could say, dear church. He decides to use dear friends. And it's an intentional, invitational move on Jude's part because he knows what he's about to say is going to be really hard to hear. He goes on and he says, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith. That's what this letter is about. He's writing his friends who are followers of Jesus, called, loved, and kept to contend for the faith that was once entrusted to God's holy people. And then here's why. Because in verse 4, it says, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago has secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. Like, he's coming at it with the frustration, but also humility because he wanted to write something different, but he's got to change and he's got to urge on the believers in this letter to contend for the faith. So I'm going to go through now. Next verses 5 through 16 are why they need to contend for the faith. And then Brennan next week gets, okay, now here's how to. Here's why. Here's what he starts with. So contend to the faith, urging them on. I need to write this about you. I want to do something different, but here it is. He starts with reminding them of past disobedience. Reminding them of past disobedience. He starts with a reminder of stories that they would know of Old Testament uh, movements and things that God had done. Verse 5, though you already know this, so there's some history of Jewish uh, not, not just knowledge, but intimacy and, and understanding of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible. Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he, he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom, reminding him, you know these stories, but listen, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So before he even gets into what is happening fully in their context and in their church, in their situation, he says, I need to remind you of what has happened in our history. Because reminders play an incredible role at setting up and helping us know what we should believe. There's things that I need to be reminded of day after day after day. This is Christmas season. So we get the awesome opportunity to talk about the birth of Jesus. And our daughter, Alice, who's amazing and hilarious, we ask her, like, hey, we do this reminder, like, hey, why do we celebrate Christmas? Like, it's, it's almost as simple as like, we just do these things because it's fun for us. Why do we celebrate Christmas? And this happened three days ago. She said, why do we celebrate Christmas, Alice? Uh, and she said, we celebrate Christmas so that we can give presents to each other. This is why we need to be reminded I've told her in, well, all five years of her life, but she probably didn't remember for years one, two, three, and apparently four, that that's not why we saw it, but we need reminders. We need reminders because they help us understand truly who God is and what we, what we should believe and how we should move forward. So no, it's an opportunity. So when she says that, like, that's what we do at Christmas. So that's not why we celebrate. You see, when we give gifts to each other, what we're doing is we're remembering the greatest gift given to us, who is Jesus, God's son, and him being born. You remember what we do? And we talk about Easter and why Jesus came and why he was born. And I'm reminding, we're saying like, the last four days has been me repeating the story because for her, it's still about gifts. 
And that's okay, and I'm going to remind her, oh, I'm going to get emotional. Dang it. <laughs> ah! Oh, I'm going to remind her every chance I get. Why would we live? I'm going to tell her stories of what God's done in my life to help her understand who God is. And so he sets up, I need to remind you. Here's what's happened with people who's gone against and away from what God desires for them. It says they serve as an example of eternal punishment. And I'm going to get there a little later, and I want to go more into it right now, but I'm going to get there later. So he starts with this reminder. The second thing he does in verses 8 through 13 in this section is that he gives them now a recognition of the deceit among them. He's letting them know, okay, here's what's going on. Here's why I had to write to you, why I wanted to write something else, but now I need to tell you to contend for your faith. Here's what the word says. He says this, in the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, uh, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. Just keep the scripture up there. So this idea of in the very same way on the strength of their dreams, what would happen is that they would get dreams or people would get visions and they would call themselves prophets and then in that they would say every dream they had was from God. But what was happening is they were either getting dreams or lying about getting dreams about how God said that they could act or tell them what they could do and what they were claiming was from God was really from selfishness and selfish ambition, from selfish thought of just how they wanted to live. But if I say, hey, God told me this, for some reason, if you have influence and if you have some sort of authority, because these were false teachers, not just people living in the community, these were teachers who had authority, who had influence, who were speaking into the lives of the church. If you say, hey, God said this, some people will listen. Some people will listen. And so he's helping them recognize, hey, there's deceit among you. And so he goes on in, in, in verse, we'll jump to verse 10 and says, yet these people, these same false teachers, those who've been condemned, These people slander whatever they do not understand and the very things they do understand by instinct as irrational animals do will destroy them. That is so aggressive. He called them irrational animals. Like my dog, Emma, who I love. um, She's eight and a half. I'm waiting for the day she dies because it feels like it's going to be any moment. It's sad and I'm going to cry and Abby's going to cry. But there's things that she does that seem like rational moves. Like when my wife was going through post, animals have this weird instinct sometimes. She's a chocolate lab. When my wife was going through postpartum depression, the hardest moments that we've had in Saturn with all three kids, Emma just knew when Abby was in a funk and would just be there. It was weird and I didn't, it didn't, but she would just be there and just be present. And it was, again, weird, but awesome. Like, that was, in my mind, a rational thing. I don't know how Emma knew. There's just something about a connection with animals and owners. I'm crying again. It's just really beautiful because there's things that I can't do, apparently, for my wife that my dog can. (laughs) Just like, because I talk too much and I can't shut up. (laughs) And Emma just sits there. Just pet me and I'll love on you. Like, that's a rational thing with someone in pain. He's saying, they're irrational animals. They don't know what they're doing. And what they, if they don't understand something, what they do is instead of moving towards asking questions or trying to learn or, or, or even saying I don't know is they slander any opposition of what they believe and how they want to live. Like irrational, psychotic, mean, and evil animals would do. And so what we get this and what he's pulling out in this, in this recognition of deceit, is these false teachers are living against the way of Jesus. And it starts first and foremost with belief. They have a corrupt belief on who God says they are. They have a corrupt belief 
on who Jesus is and what Jesus has called us to, and ultimately they have a corrupt belief on what grace is. Look at verse four. It says this, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. It says this then, they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. They pervert the grace of God. They have a perversion, a corruption, and just a wrong belief of the grace of God. And that belief turned into action and behavior. And that action and behavior was one of a license for immorality. And this idea of perversion of grace is something that the church and a theologian by the name of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, I think he was the first to coin it, he might not have been, but he talks about this idea of cheap grace. He talks about this idea of cheap grace. And, and, and I'll just say this real quick. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was living in the time of World War II, was living in the time of Hitler and the Nazis and the Third Reich. And he was noticing, as one who loved Jesus, that there were Nazis who, in the name of Jesus, were doing evil things and then condemning other people for not following what they were doing. So they were doing evil acts in the name of Jesus. And then he saw the church around that start to follow these false teachers. And so he talked about this idea of cheap grace. And he says this in his book, Costs of Discipleship, part one, chapter one, it says this. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. It is grace without price, grace without cost. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, an intellectual ascent. What he means are just grace as something, as a theological thing in our head, a piece of knowledge that we need to ascertain or know. And he's saying it's more than that. Because cheap grace, he says is this, means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Listen to the last two weeks and hear Brennan give a beautiful picture of what really God calls us to when he calls us and commands us to to forgive one another, to accept and recognize we've, we've been forgiven by God, but there's more that God has for us in that. He did this beautifully the last two weeks. He says it's baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross. It's grace without Jesus Christ. This idea of cheap grace looks like this in our church. It's salvation being sold as fire insurance. It sells us a comfortable Jesus who we sing love songs to, which is in itself isn't bad. But if you know anything about who Jesus is, man, he moves us out of comfortability. Cheap grace substitutes the fear of the Lord for the fear of the world. Cheap grace hides our light under wonderful lampshades, and cheap grace renders the salt of the earth as tasteless landfill. There's two kinds of, cheap, uh, of this idea of cheap grace. One that he talks about, this idea of grace without Jesus. And that's anything that someone teaches or does to tell you that salvation, that your relationship with God is more than what just Jesus has done for you in his life, death, and resurrection. We call this legalism. And so an aspect of cheap grace is to say, yes, believe in Jesus, but also you need to come to church every week. It's adding on obedience to, to say, you need to keep the love of God by continuing to obey for him. Otherwise, the love of God will be separated from you again. It's adding on to the work Jesus has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. And then there's a second form of cheap grace. And that's grace without the Holy Spirit. And that is what these false teachers are living into. Grace without the Spirit. 
It's people believing that believers are saved by God's grace in Christ, but then they can sin whenever they feel like it because God will forgive them anyway. This kind of cheap grace does not take into account the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification, the Holy Spirit's work of making us holy as Jesus desires us to be holy. It takes away the reality of what Paul said about how the fruit of the Spirit overflows from us because of our relationship with Jesus. It cares nothing about accountability. And it dismisses sin, which ultimately leads us to a path of destruction. And so they have this corrupted belief of what true grace is, of what the gospel really is. And that belief ultimately then leads to behavior. Because belief ultimately dictates what we do. You see, they rejected all more authority, all moral authority from the book of Moses. They rejected even Jesus in the New Testament. Like it says in verse 4 is where it says, uh, they pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Their behavior is one where in the strength of our own dreams, verse 8, says these ungodly people pollute their bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse. They were most likely what we would call in church history uh, uh, Gnostics. They believed in Gnosticism, which was a belief held that said everything physical in the world is evil, and anything that was good is spiritual. So therefore, if everything in the world that's physical is evil, what I do with my physical body doesn't matter. Can't be held against me. So in their perversion of grace, what they did is they would go around in pagan temples and sleep with prostitutes. They would sleep with each other's wives. They would try to sleep with the wives of the church members that they were living in community with because they believed in a perversion of their grace, a corrupted belief that what I did in my behavior, in my obedience, which is what we would call ultimately doesn't matter if it's an act with my physical body. The problem with that is it goes completely against the command that Jesus gives. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Your strength is your physical body. It's this holistic response of love to God because of his love for us. Verse 11 says, Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's heir. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. So because of a corrupted belief, uh, they now entered into a behavior that was one of rebellion. Cain, who was jealous enough to murder his brother. Jealousy ran rampant amongst these believers. It was jealousy for power, which is what Korah's rebellion is. Korah rebelled against God's appointed leaders wanting power for himself in number 16. And then he used that power to gain selfish ambition. And this is what these people did. Today, they fell into Balaam's heir. Balaam was a prophet of the Old Testament that instead of being a prophet and prophesizing for God, he would charge people for a word from God because he was greedy. So what we get in here is this idea. These false teachers came in in a sneaky way. They convinced the people in the church there that they were followers of Jesus, and then they started charging money to be able to teach and to be able to shepherd their behavior was one of complete selfishness because it derived from a misunderstanding of what grace really is. And then the third way that he helped them recognize the deceitfulness among them was this idea of belonging. And it's not belonging to the kingdom of God. It's belonging in the sense of how do we live with each other in community? 
And verse 12 and 13 says this. These people are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They're clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest Black as darkness has been reserved forever. That is some insane, beautiful, yet terrifying imagery. This guy is a poet. You see, because ultimately the problem for Jude and what he had heard and why he is asking them to contend for their faith is that these men, these false prophets, didn't just have false beliefs that led to false behaviors. They were apparently a part of the community. And possibly, like I said, even teachers who were deceiving in that verse 12, it talks about being these reefs. And if you were along a ship and you were, and the Greek there literally is, it's a hidden reef. If you're a hidden reef and you got hit by the reef that you didn't see, you'd literally be shipwrecked. And so he says, they're among you in your love feast. And in all this time, in Old Testament time, or New Testament time, excuse me, in the early church, when they would have communion, their communion wasn't just the, the body and blood of Jesus in remembrance. It's what they would have is they would literally eat supper together and have food together. And, they, and then they would do communion in remembrance of what Jesus had done for them. They called these things love feasts. But then I think we need to adopt that language and just have food every time that we do communion. And we're going to call, hey, welcome to love feast. That sounds so weird, but I love it. And he's like, they're there, and they're sitting among you, and they're doing communion with you, and they're fellowshipping with you, but they're hidden reefs, because what they're doing ultimately is they're leading you towards shipwreck and towards abandonment. He says they're shepherds to themselves, and so they've taken the authority and the influence and the role of a shepherd, of a leader, of a, a, a pastor, and, and, and a preacher, and a teacher for them, and yet because they're shepherds to themselves, they can't learn. So they have this corrupt idea of what it means to belong to a community, because anytime something gets brought up that they don't know, instead of saying, I don't know, and trying to learn from each other, it's they think they know everything everything. They're leading people astray. It says they're clouds without rain. If you're a farmer and you're in a dry season, if, especially in this time, they didn't have the weather channel, even though the weather channel is not super accurate sometimes. I feel bad for meteorologists. You see clouds, your expectation is rain. You see clouds, your expectation is rain, and when rain doesn't come, there's disappointment because it's a failed promise. They're clouds without rain, and they were, what they were teaching were false promises either from God or who, they weren't accountable to themselves. They were not good to their word. He says they lived in community like trees in autumn, basically meaning there's no fruit. There's no love. There's no joy. There's no peace. Their wild waves churning of foam talks about this idea of instability. You, you see a, a lake, especially in windy South Dakota, and you see the weird foam stuff. There's aggressive waves that keep happening in that, and things get brought up, and what's getting brought up is grossness. Like, I don't want to swim in foam. That's disgusting. You ever seen it? Man, Lake Byron used to be full of it. I was from here on. I remember it because I used to swim in it, and I didn't like it. But it was like the foam was raised up with disgustingness, and what happened is... What he's getting at is this idea of instability in their sin. Because the waves are crashing so hard, what kept getting brought up is they were almost bragging in their sin. And what that was doing is inviting people along with them to sin with them. To say, it's okay. But loving Jesus ultimately is following and obeying Jesus in every aspect of our life. It's foregoing what I want to have happen, what I want to believe, what I want to do and ultimately saying, Jesus, I am yours. It's a public confession of complete surrender and baptism, and it's a private confession of Jesus, I no longer, of saying, Jesus, I no longer live, but Jesus, you who lives in me. I am yours. 
You see, this letter that Jude is writing and why he starts it with a servant of Jesus is that God's grace demands a whole life response. And that response should and needs to align with God's truth. That's what he's getting at. With the right understanding and belief of what the gospel of Jesus is, of what the grace of God truly means, automatically overflowing from that is a holistic response to say, Jesus, I am yours. And then he says, and talks about how they're wandering stars doomed in darkness in verses 14 through 16. You can throw it up. I don't remember. I think it, it says that back there, maybe. Thank you. Um, and I'm just going to keep this up. I'm not going to read through it. But this idea of wandering stars doomed to darkness ultimately talks about their impending destruction and damnation. And I want to talk about 14 through 16. It says right there in 14, it says, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone convict all of them of all their ungodly acts they've committed in their ungodliness and all of the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against them this idea of judgment that is happening that is impending is going to happen specifically to these false teachers to these people who've been living for themselves who have been a part of the community and brought corruption and rebellion And so what he does through 14 and 16 is Jude brings about this reproach of what I like to call the disruptive because they're ultimately disrupting the movement and advancement of God's kingdom. And I want to talk about going back to this idea of the Old Testament stories serving as examples of eternal punishment. And in that, what he's getting to is these same false teachers are eventually not just going to serve examples, but be in line and are in line for God's judgment and eternal separation and damnation. Eternal punishment. And what I want to get at is I've struggled, when I, especially when I was a new believer of Jesus, or in trying to follow Jesus, figure out what this looked like. I struggled with really understanding, okay, I understand God loves me, at least intellectually. It's in there. Okay, yes, God forgives me, yet I still sin here. How can he still love me? Yet I've fallen short here. How do I know that I'm still accepted by God? And what I want to say is this idea of judgment, what God is ultimately judging, yes, is our life. It's the choices that we make but it's centralized around one simple thing. Who is Jesus to you? And what are you going to do with that information? Who is Jesus to you? And what are you ultimately going to do about it? Because those who experience and will experience eternal punishment, eternal separation, ultimately, man, this is so hard, make the choice to do so. The destination of hell is one of eternal separation that people choose. Tim Keller in an article in 2008 says it this way. Hell is this, it's God actively giving us up to what we have freely chosen to go on our way, be our own master of our fate and captain of our soul, to get away from him and his control. It is God banishing us to regions we have desperately tried to get into all our lives. If the thing you want most want is to worship God in the beauty of his holiness, then that is what you will get. If the thing you most want is to be your own master, then the holiness of God will become an agony 
and the presence of God, a terror you will flee forever. Hell is simply one's freely chosen path going on forever. We wanted to get away from God, and God in his infinite justice sends us where we wanted to go. And so those who experience eternal separation from God, eternal punishment, who experience hell, are ones who have chosen the lifestyle to be their own master, who have chosen to follow their own way. He says, if your desire is to experience the presence of God, that is what you're going to experience. And I'm here to tell you that we can experience the presence of God because Jesus has made it possible. Listen to this. This is God's grace. This is the gospel to which I pray and hope you believe. See, grace is God's unmerited favor because of Jesus' sacrifice for all who trust in him. You see, since we are sinners, there's nothing we can do to earn the favor of God. There's nothing we can do to pay for the sins that we have committed, the sins that have separated us from a holy, good God. But God, in his grace and love, sent his son to be born in the flesh because there was no other way for us to be saved. Jesus did all the work to earn God's favor on our behalf so that we could have peace with God and we could have everlasting life. By God's grace... By God's grace, we have been made right with God. And we've been made right because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God's grace is amazing because even though we are guilty before him based on our sin, he declares us righteous in Jesus. He declares us righteous in Jesus. And so those who are going to experience judgment in an eternal separation and punishment from God who are going to experience hell are ones who have not, are not living a life just of a proneness to sin, but a pattern of complete selfishness in sin. And so if you were like me, struggling and wondering, man, I, I, I fall here and I fall short here, but I still want you, Jesus, but do you really love me? I'm here to say, yes, he does. I'm here to say, you do not have to worry about where you will be when you die. You don't have to worry and be afraid of an eternal punishment, separation from God. Because if you've trusted in Jesus as King, Savior, Lord, he says if you repent and believe, repent is to confess sin, to confess and recognize, yes, I have sinned against you, God. I have lied and I've stolen, I've cheated, even the smallest sin. And in that, in that separation, I've gone away from you. I confess that I've done those things. He says, if you confess your sin, he is righteous and just, and he'll forgive you your sin. He says, if you repent, confess, and then also turn to Jesus, meaning what Jude is saying. What does it look like to be his servant? It's a holistic response to God because you've understood and ultimately know God's love for you. And here is how that ultimately played out. Jesus suffered infinitely more than any human soul in eternal hell, yet he looks at us and says it was worth it. His death on the cross was hell. He took on literally the sin of the world. And in taking that on, he was separated for the first time ever from his father because he had sin, because he took on our sin. And so God turned his face, but it didn't end there. It didn't end there. Three days later, he was risen. And God said, the sin that was on you, the sin of the world, my sin and your sin that was on Jesus and in his death and through his death has been paid for. 
It's done. You are mine. You are called, loved, and now kept in Jesus. Do you trust him? Do you know him? I don't know about you, but when I know that Jesus went through hell, that I deserve to go through, a separation from God that I deserve because of my sin, and yet he looks at me and says, you're worth it. I don't know if there's anything else on this world that can make me feel more loved and more valued. And it's in that, for me, that I've chosen to say yes to Jesus. To respond and say, I surrender all. And in moments where I struggle, in moments where I fall short, because I still do, the goal there isn't to sit in my sin and sit in judgment and condemnation thinking, does God love me? It's to remember that I am who God says I am. And I think Jude started off his letter in that way on purpose. Team, you can come up as we get ready to sing this last song. He started his letter proclaiming identity over the believers. Proclaiming this is who you are. He says this. He says, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. He says, those who are called. God calls all people into relationship with Jesus. And I don't know about you, but anytime that we have a phone call, there's someone at the other end, right? Right? If I'm calling someone. Shillo. Hey. Hey, babe. Love you. Thanks for answering. Love you. Bye. <laughs> but if I call, someone on the other end needs to receive it. She could have easily not answered. Very easily. I called her, and she answered. So when God says, I call you, He's saying, I'm calling you into a relationship back with me and that relationship happens through Jesus. Make him your king, your savior, and your Lord. And once you do that, he says, now you are called forever. Nothing can separate you from my love. He calls you child. In that he also says that you are kept in Jesus. And this indicates that Jesus is the one who's able to give believers the strength to persevere through all difficulties, either until their death or until Jesus returns. And this idea of perseverance is in those moments where you still fall short and you sin and you wonder because the enemy is gonna attack and the enemy is gonna try to confuse and Satan wants to try to lead you astray. In those moments where you wonder, man, God, do you really love me? That's where this idea of being kept for Jesus, you are kept, you are his and solely his. Complete in Christ. New creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Reconciled back to God. This is who he calls you. And ultimately, he says, loved by God, it expresses the role of God's all-encompassing work in the life of a Christian. You are worth it. Jesus, in going through hell on the cross, looked at every single person, looked at you and thought of you and said, you're worth it because you bring and have value because I want you because I don't want you to be separated from God. So those who experience the eternal punishment and separation are those who don't want the presence of God in their life. And we know that the presence of God only comes through Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you, thank you for these moments where we get to experience your goodness, but even more so where we get to praise you. 
where we get reminded and remember of what you've done for us. Thank you through your life, death, and resurrection, Jesus, that you saved us. And it wasn't just a saving from hell, it was a saving into life, and that's what grace is. And so God, in your amazing grace, thank you that you've given us what we don't deserve, which is everlasting life, but also you've given us an ability and power through your spirit to holistically give you everything that we are. Power through your spirit to experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, to experience your love every single moment of every single day. And I ask as we continue in worship and as we leave this place, that all your mercy, your peace, and your love would be ours in abundance. In Jesus' name, amen.